Okay, people. We have to prepare for a more angry world. And uh, how to prepare? Uh, it means to take the necessary action to create a fairer world, um, to see that uh, we provide everybody with uh, decent access to the health system, um, that we make sure that those people uh, who are really left behind, uh, and I'm not speaking only on national levels, I'm speaking also internationally. If I see now uh, the tragedy in some of the emerging countries like South Africa, like some countries in East Asia, I think it's all, uh, I, I don't have too many remedies. The, the remedies have to be discussed through dialogue by the stakeholders of our global system. But um, I just see the need for such a dialogue and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. Welcome to Counterspin, episode 95. I'm your host, Hannah Spira, and you'll all be wondering where Calvin is. He is out in the field on a mission, and so I'm here um, flying solo, trying to get you through a big topic today. And of course, in that clip there, that was a word from our self-appointed global sponsor, Klaus Schwab. Uh, and while that clip was specifically addressing COVID-19 and the response that's been rolled out around the world, uh, the same can actually apply to other United Nations and World Economic Forum agendas, uh, which are part of this whole global reset, specifically climate change, energy and food, the disrupting of supply chains, uh, the CBDCs, releasing mass immigration around the world through the Global Compact for Immigration, uh, the further creation of division and chaos through racial division, and the policies in the UN Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People, which is what we will be looking at today. So the whole overarching aim, of course, is from this chaos. Um, all these good Marxists are, of course, going to bring in the Great Reset, creating a new world order out of this chaos. And you're asking, how is this going to be discussed today? Well, co-governance. That's the topic, and it's been a hot-button issue here in New Zealand, and we've got the election coming up in October. Uh, this little booklet, some of you may have received that in your mailbox because 350,000 copies have been distributed by Julian Batchelor, who is running the Stop Co-Governance Tour. He's been travelling up and down the country since February, and he's been getting much pushback from the far left and now he's getting pushback from the Electoral Commission. So in the next 100,000 issues of that booklet, he will be having to put a disclaimer, essentially saying that he's not supporting any particular party. He's just trying to raise awareness about all those who do not support co-governance. And the Human Rights uh, Commission has also written a letter to him. So he's got his lawyers pushing back on both of those two organisations. Now, as I said, this topic has got the left very activated here in New Zealand. Uh, they're claiming that Julian Batchelor is a racist and he's very divisive, but this is all by design. Now, 
I just want to um, run through a few terms that especially those of you overseas may be unaware of because we are talking Māori and that is the official um, native Polynesian popula population here in New Zealand. It's the kind of official uh, definition. Yet there is much dispute about New Zealand history and like all over the world, history is being rewritten. Uh, here we've got another undertaking or another look at history that has actually been suppressed under uh, lock and key for 75 years until 2063, which suggests that there were others here before Māori got here. But that's uh, another story, and you can actually find that in one of our earlier um, episodes. So Fano is the word for family, an extended family. Tangata whenua means people of the land. Hapu is a subtribe or, you know, a conglomerate of whānau. Uh, and then iwi is a number of hapu, or a number of, a collective of sub-tribes. Now, the word iwi has also been corporatized, so it's become essentially part of the crown and is a vehicle for many of the treaty claims to be settled. Hey, Puapua is this document that UNDRIP here in New Zealand is being rolled out with, and we'll be talking more about that. Kupapa is a traitor, not to be confused with Kopapa, which is principles and policies and a mission, for example. Aotearoa is the new name given to New Zealand, and that has been done by stealth. There has been no democratic, um, you know, it hasn't been put to the people of New Zealand asking if we want to change the name of uh, our country. It's just been rolled out by the education system, the, you know, the health system. Our signs are getting changed to Māori and the corporations are also now referring to New Zealand as Aotearoa. Um, and finally, well, it must also be noted that in the treaty that New Zealand was referred to as New Tarini and the Treaty of Waitangi is, of course, the treaty between the UK Crown and Māori. So um, this episode is going to be very packed with um, guests. We've got three guests coming up. Uh, before I let you know who those guests are, we just want to play this quick clip uh, from Te Po, who is a Māori, but he identifies as tangata whenua, so someone from this land, and he is not in favour of co-governance. And we're just going to show you this clip and then we'll link the Facebook um, profile so you can go and watch his whole speech, if you like. Um, this morning I'll be speaking on co-governance, the pros and cons. Both for Tangata Māori and Tangata Pākehā. I can see co-governance is being set up. Kurbala, I can see co-governance is being set up, manufactured and designed to cause civil unrest and divide by the, by politicians. Not just politicians. We're talking United Nations and their bosses, the International Monetary Fund, the World Economic Forum. I'm talking the World Health Organization and all their minions. BlackRock, Vanguard, we know, you know, who's behind and pulling the strings of 
the New Zealand Government Corporation. What, uh, so what I do want to speak to, but I want to keep, uh, keep this in order, starting off with the pros and cons first. But before I start, I just want to clarify who are these Maori elites, Maori elites, iwi elites. Iwi are not a fair representation of Maori, tangata Maori. In fact, these iwi leaders, and they are not leaders, they are not our leaders, they are self-elected by their own whānau, their own organisations to speak for and on the behalf of all tangata Māori and their rohi. Iwi do not speak for us. They are a crown entity, meaning they are also crown puppets and they are involved in the designing and the manufacturing of this co-governance bullshit. Apologies for the profanity in that clip, but it, what it shows you is that it's not only Pākehā who are the non-Māori of this country, but also Māori who are not happy with this whole rollout of co-governance because the WEF and the United Nations are deliberately causing division uh, with these policies. And what we're going to do now is take a closer look at, as I said, the United Nations and the UNDRIP policy, for, which is the UN Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People, and how it's actually changing the fabric of society um, through what, what they're terming co-governance policy and decolonisation ideas within New Zealand. So first we're going to have Chris Newman, who is a New Zealand author. Uh, he's just released a book. Then we're going to have researcher Carol Saiki. She'll be really diving into what UNDRIP actually is and how it started. And then finally we'll be hearing from Sam. Uh, and of course she's from the Cement, the Edwards Report that you can watch here on Counterspin. And she will discuss her recent assault at one of the local stop governance um tour events here in New Zealand. But before we now bring Chris on, let's check out what the Canadian government has to say about UNDRIP and this lovely piece of fluffy propaganda. Have you heard of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples? This is a document that sets global standards to uphold the human rights of Indigenous peoples, also known as a human rights instrument. For decades, Indigenous leaders from Canada and around the world had advocated for and helped draft a declaration to promote and protect the rights of Indigenous peoples. In 2007, the United Nations adopted the declaration. This declaration sets out a broad range of human rights. For example, it affirms such rights as the right of all Indigenous peoples to self-determination and self-government to decide what is best for their communities and to participate in decisions that affect them. The right to have their treaties and agreements honored and respected. The right to use and teach their languages and histories and to practice their cultural traditions and customs. The right to access social and health services without discrimination and to improve their economic and social well-being. The right to be free from any kind of discrimination and to live in peace and security as distinct peoples. In Canada, the Declaration is a roadmap for the shared journey of reconciliation, one that respects the human rights of Indigenous peoples. To learn more about the Declaration and how Canada is working with Indigenous peoples to implement it, visit canada.ca slash 
Declaration. And now we are joined by local New Zealand author and social historian Chris Newman. He has written uh, his second book and released that this week. It is entitled Fraud, Plunder, Treason and Our Treaty. Thanks for holding that up, Chris. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Hannah. And uh, I'm very pleased to be with Counterspin today. Excellent. Now, let's um, before we kick into your book and how that relates to Hey Pua Pua um, and Undrip, let's get your comments on that video we just played. It, it's such a happy um, little video, isn't it? It makes this whole Undrip seem like a very good thing. Yeah, it reminds me of um, a kid's party. You know, suddenly it pops up and it says, Indigeneity, New Zealand indigeneity since 2007. You know, and we don't want to pop the party, do we? But let's get <laughs> down to the facts. In 2007, suddenly the New Zealand government signed that uh, UNDRIP agreement. How is it that since the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840, for example, until 2007, nobody ever thought about indigeneity? It was not an issue. Nobody even knew what the word meant except for a few anthropologists and suddenly we're invited to this indigeneity party courtesy of the United Nations. What possibly could be their motive? What possibly could be the interests of people like Dr. Claire Charters, who's the New Zealand architect of UNDRIP, there she is, claiming to be an indigenous person and here's a photo next to her of two genuine Maori women from 1880. And Dr. Charters claims to be the leader of the indigeneity uh, uh, a document, the Hei Pua Pua, and she claims to be indigenous. And why I want to examine her is she's like a symbol of this whole thing. We looked into Dr. Charters' background and she's her bloodline is only 12.5% Maori. Even though she claims to be affiliated with Ngāti Whakawa, whatever that is, Tuwharetoa, Ngāpui and Tainui, that's only 12% of her bloodline. So she's an Indigenous person, but 87% of her is Charters, Burnett, Stevens, Hodge and Dawson. So the most indigenous person in New Zealand, Dr. Charters, is only 12.5%. This thing's starting to look like a racket. Perhaps indigeneity is a kind of a sock puppet. On the outside, it's got this indigenous thing, and everybody says, oh, we've got to look after the indigenous people. They were here first. But which part of Dr. Charters arrived first in her 12.5%? It looks like a scam. Who would want to buy a product that was only one-eighth the advertised content? <laughs> We've got a problem here. Dr. Charters is obviously a fake, and she's making money out of the UN, out of the New Zealand government, and out of her Auckland University and obviously, anybody who believes this can't tell poop from plasticine. The whole thing stinks because it doesn't add up. So 
suddenly we've got this bouncing little happy video we just saw, which is called advertising and fluff to promote a word called indigenous, which we only heard about in 2007. And apparently all these indigenous people need protection. Protection from what? If we study the history of New Zealand, we learn about the musket wars. The biggest threat to the so-called Maori were each other. They were eating and killing each other like it was open season. In fact, 40% of their nation were their nations, their tribal groups were were, were slaughtered in a 20-year period from about 1820 to 1840. So so much for indigeneity. Now, let's talk a bit more about New Zealand indigeneity. See this this image here. This is the fairy people who were here before the Maori. They were fair-haired blue-eyed people whom the, the Polynesian arrivals exterminated. Now, surely they were the original indigenous inhabitants. Where does this begin and end? Can anybody be indigenous as Dr. Charters is? If she feels a bit indigenous and yet she's part of four little tribes, her 12.5% of her bloodline, what does that tell us about the United Nations program? Well, but this is the thing now, Chris. Anybody can identify as anything, uh, and it doesn't have to even be true. A man can identify as a woman. A woman can identify as a man. So why can't I identify as a Maori, even though I've got 0% blood, Maori blood in me? Um, and, you know, if they want to get so nitpicky about this word indigenous, which as far as I understand it just means of this place or, you know, you know, basically born here. Yeah. Um, so we're all indigenous, whoever was born here. But um, even if we were going to take it to mean, you know, first peoples or whatever, I could just identify as that and that should be enough. Well, let's scrape down another layer, Hannah, because we're talking about the United Nations and documents. Maybe there's a little bit of ideology involved, a little bit of UN ideology that just help, helps to run this little program. Yeah, and just before you get onto that, I just want to say one thing. Sure. That video was obviously uh, specific to Canada, mm -hmm. but this program, this ideology, is being rolled out worldwide now, isn't it? And right. and Canada and New Zealand seem to be actually leading uh, this whole thing, which is rewriting history yep. um, and handing over rights to a foreign power, essentially, um, basically using these people that they call indigenous. Yes, so that knocks the knees out of the so-called, um, you know, Maori sovereignty argument because uh, these guys, uh, what's the name, Dr. Charters and others want to surrender New Zealand's sovereignty to the UN. They want to hand over um, uh, rights that belong to the people of New Zealand from the grassroots these characters want to strip it off at the top, and let's include in there our good friend Anaya Mahuta, who's who's only thirty eight percent Maori background. By the way, that's another story. And just for our international audience, Chris, can you just let everybody know who Nanaya Mahuta is? Yes, uh, she's a member of the New Zealand government, a minister, minister of Maori affairs, minister of foreign affairs, and so on. Uh, her real family name is Ormsby. Her father changed the family name to a Maori aristocratic name to get in on the 
uh, gravy train of indigeneity and money for being a professional Indigenous person. But and now, am I correct? Can I just cut in there too? Was her father part of the treaty settlements, or somehow he had kind of got involved early on? Yes, he was part of that industry in the early days. Correct. Jeremiah Ormsby. He was involved with the with the Waitangi Tribunal settlement process, That's and he right. was a yep. he was a um, an advocate and petitioner to the government to get money for Tainui. Right. Yeah. So she's just carried on. Oh, it's worse. Boy, oh boy. But that's, I don't know if you want to go into that too far, but that's all in my book. Um, yeah, well, people will have to get the book. So I think for now, we'll have to get you back on and, and, you know, get you to dive deeper. But just for now, what exactly do you see the UNDRIP doing long term? So we've basically, the way I see it and understand it is we've got, we've got, what they are deeming indigenous, which, you know, we, we've had that discussion. It's kind of definitely uh, not what they want us to believe. Anyone can identify as indigenous. But they're saying with these iwi corporations, uh, we're going to have hey, pua pua giving Māori, you know, a seat at the table without, you know, being actually democratically elected. Um, and these iwi corporations are going to then, with the UN, essentially uh, bring in UN policy, uh, which is going to completely change the fabric of this country. Is that correct? That is how the Hei Pua Pua is written. There's another level to it as well, bringing in um, so-called indigenous Maori religion. This is, book is called the, the, the Woven Universe. And when we study this pagan religion that they're trying to bring in, which has been invented, it's like a third-class uh, rip-off of a Greek mythology. It's quite funny. So there's this earth goddess called Papa Tuanuku, and we're all supposed to worship her. Um, so, you know, get prepared to have a little shrine in your in your uh, home for Papa Tuanuku so that you can be spiritually connected with the people inside the United Nations who all know what's best for us as they go and worship their strange gods. And uh, out the window goes everything to do with Western civilization. I have a copy here of the Magna Carta. You know, about 2,000 years of civilization go down the drain as these twerps uh, and ignorant ignoramuses move into positions of responsibility inside New Zealand as many puppets of the UN uh, globalist corporate uh, movement to plunder each country using the means of divide and conquer. And the wedge is indigeneity, indigeneity, because they can yeah, because any Chris, creep. Sorry. Yes. I'll just, I'll just um, jump in here again, because for our international audience, we want you to understand, uh, like what Chris is saying, it's been, it, it's basically a Trojan horse that's coming in through uh, this, you know, Māori dim. Um, and of course, the, the, you know, the majority of Māori have no idea what's going on and they're just being used. But, the way that they've done it is they've basically changed the the name of this country to Aotearoa um, from New Zealand without even a referendum. Um, they are using Māori words. They've changed signage, road signage in this country. Yep. Um, you know, they've even got corporations um, and businesses pushing the Māori language. Uh, when what 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 is it? Twelve percent of New Zealand is Māori. I mean, it's such a small, and I think only two or three uh, percent even speak Māori. Let's jump into that. There's been 200 years of intermarriage since the um, very strong connections were established with New Zealand and Australia and Great Britain. 
So the original Maori people who were called Tangata Maori no longer exist. And people who are their descendants are mixed race, as we've examined with uh, clear charters. So their racial mixture is um, all kinds of people. So they could claim to be Maori under New Zealand legislation if there's even a slightest hint in the background. And they call themselves Tangata Whenua. But that just means people of the land. Tangata means people and Whenua means the land, or it can also mean the placenta. So the uh, original people who were here, the Polynesian um, migrants who arrived about 600 years before the uh, the British did, uh, long ago ceased to exist. So this is a fiction. It's an imagined state. But it is a very clever Marxist tactic to invent something to confuse the enemy because nobody knows in New Zealand how to handle it. They pretend that the that Minister of Maori Affairs is a Maori, but she's only 38% Maori and she's 44% English, 13% Rarotongan and 6% Irish. Now, uh, which part are we dealing with? Well, you know, would you buy a product which is only 38% the label? This is nonsense. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just going to cut in nonsense. again because I've just, I've just looked up the numbers. So New Zealand is 71.8% uh ethnic European, 16.5% Māori, 15.3% Asian, and 9% uh, Pacific. So we're a very multicultural country. Uh, but of course, you know, the minority now seems to be getting forced on the majority. And this is a problem because I guess they the way they sell it as well is like, oh, we're going to right the wrongs of the past. You know, we're, we're decolonizing the whole system. Yeah. Um, but when you hear... You know, the Greens, um, you know, Chloe Schraubrick talking about how the Westminster system, which is our political system, um, is not fit for purpose. Um, I mean, where are these people going? Like, what yeah, kind okay. of political this, system this are they is, actually going to bring in? This is collectivism. They're working on Marxist, classic Marxist collectivism using the cultural um, rap. As I said, it's like a, glove, a sock puppet, and the sock is their culture. So they're pretending that there is a Maori culture, but all these so-called Maoris are actually regular local people with a dash of something. And it's just that the parliament made a stupid law that said anybody, a person of Maori descent is a Maori. Now, I dig into this matter in great depth in my book. We are all New Zealanders. And right. there is no 12% Maori. That's total BS because those figures cover people down to one 64th, 128th, it's like that lady um, in, in America, that Senator Pocahontas, uh, Elizabeth Warren, she's one part out of 1,056th Indian, for goodness sake. <laughs> and this is the thing, they just want us arguing about all, of, of all stuff of no relevance. That's What's it. really important here is that people need to understand is that the officials at the United Nations are unelected, the officials at the World Economic Forum are unelected. Yep. These are global um, elite uh, groups of people that do want to bring in one world government, one world order, and they've kind of they've stopped using that phrase, the new world order, um, and just started using things like the the new rule, rules rules based world and different. Yep or the Great Reset because yep. they've they've realised that people are cottoning on to what they're doing yep. and essentially it's taking away the sovereign rights of each nation state uh, right from out from under it, bringing, bringing the legislation and the policy through, 
you know, our local councils and now um, with the yep. split in New Zealand um, based on race. Yep. And it's it's really concerning. And just yep. one more um, comment from you, Chris, because what I've noticed is that the New Zealand politicians are all talking about it in terms of the treaty. Yep. Um, they are not even actually mentioning the United Nations. And no. the um, Heipuapua states very clearly that this is about UNDRIP and bringing that in. So why, I mean, do the politicians not even know about United, the United Nations and how this is coming in? Is it just a great big conspiracy? Or why do they seem to be ignoring the elephant in the room? Groupthink. They're afraid. They don't know how to handle cultural Marxism. Most of them have not studied the um, ideological and intellectual forces that are against them. They're amateurs in a game which is being played through the UN by some very talented people who understand psychology, history, particularly once they get their hands on money, they're able to mobilise academic resources and get all the professors singing off the same song sheet. So there's a lack of moral courage, lack of intellectual ability, a lack of life experience. It's a complete failure of guts and um, a, a walking away from the, the very things which save us. It's our treaty. The Treaty of Waitangi is ours. It belongs to us. And it's amazing. It actually solves the whole problem because it protects us with the British common law, the whole system and tradition that goes back 3,000 years in the UK, back into the, the, the guts of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. All that is baked in and it works. We don't need Indigenous treaties. We've already got the first Indigenous treaty, which is the Magna Carta. It's amazing. And earlier than that, the Ten Commandments. That's a treaty for everybody. So these guys, um, the so-called Maoris, which are all gone now, 200 years ago were killing and eating each other. That's straight-out violation of the commandment. You're not meant to kill and eat your neighbours. That's not very good policy. No, it most certainly is not, Chris. Now, let's just try and bring the focus back on our founding document, which is Te Tiriti o Waitangi, signed on February the 6th, 1840, and... That is the official document recognised by international law. In English, it's referred to as the Treaty of Waitangi. And there are a number of documents, different versions floating around. And there seems to be a lot of confusion, Chris. So could you just give us a little bit of a history lesson and clarify some of that confusion for us, please? In 1840, an offer was made between the Crown, the British Crown, and all the people in New Zealand, including the chiefs and tribes. It was um, presented through the British and a draft was written. And here is a, a book about the draft. It's called the Littlewood Treaty because it was um, an English draft was written. There, there's the text of it on the front of the book. Yeah, and that's by Martin Dutray. And we've got copies of that, merchantcounterspinmedia.com if you want one. It, it was yeah. translated into Maori by missionaries William's family, father and son, who'd been living here 17 years, perfectly bilingual. So the chiefs and tribes were invited to sign, and they all, well, not all, but 512 of them, that's the majority, uh, did quite happily surrendered their sovereignty so that they could stop their war and move in under uh, with each other and move under uh, a British uh, rule and sovereignty so that we could begin to live together as a peacefully as one nation. Because so why? Because the they could also see the French coming and they were worried about the French, so oh, they wanted yeah. to go with the, the English. Yes, that's correct. And that they were worried because of the the, the uh, Maori tribes had one group had actually killed and slaughtered 
uh, 27 um, French Marion Dufresne's team um, about uh, 50 years previously or, or whatever, and they were worried that the French might come and extract revenge on them. So they had good reason to hide behind the skirts of the British. And um, the sad, the, what's happened is that that original English draft, which was used to to, to write the, um, the the proper Maori treaty, uh, was lost to history for quite a while and was floating around. There was another thing written by a man called Freeman, who was a sort of an observer of events, and he wrote a little report. And that was not accurate, and that's what got passed and pretended by the government uh, that it was the English treaty, which is a total lie. But all that is covered in the fraud part of my book. That's why I got fraud here. We found so out at the, the moment government at the moment that, the Maori version is yes. the correct version, and the English version that they've used is far longer, far more extensive, and they've brought in the nineteen correct me if I'm wrong nineteen seventy five Treaty of Waitangi Act, which is undermining the original Maori Treaty. That's right. And then it's... in the late 80s, early 90s, this the, the actual correct English version was found, and they're that's trying right. to say that's the fraud. Absolutely. So New Zealand Parliament um, passed a fraudulent document in 1975, which means that the Parliament itself is in fraud. It has a nullity. It is unable to function. The, in other words, all of these politicians are involved in a criminal conspiracy against the people of New Zealand. And I've established these all the facts. The documents are all in my book. And uh, we've gone right through it, double-checked everything. Parliament is in fraud. What they're doing is, in fact, in UNDRIP and all that is invalid. It's illegal. It's a conspiracy against us, basically. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be surprised if they know that, you know, they've done the dodgy on this treaty, that they're now trying to bring in this UNDRIP to supersede it it and to make that, you know, the the founding, well, not the founding, but the the way we go forward with that legislation and policy. Cover one crime with another. Um, All right, I'm going to have to cut in there, Chris, and we're going to have to wrap it up. So why don't you quickly tell people where they can find your book, uh, what what the name of it is again, and, um, you know, where where they may be able to find your other work. So Fraud, Plunder, Treason and Our Treaty. Uh, We are are going to open a website this weekend on Shopify. You can order that book. Each of those words covers the three stages of, of the uh, rape of New Zealand. You know, first the fraud, you've got to get the trickery in, then you've got to get access to the resources, and then the treason comes. And the treason is when people, these characters in the government, betray us to a foreign power, which is the United Nations. And treason is a hanging offence. So why would they remove that off that offence off the statute, the politicians, other than the fact that they were doing it, the protecting themselves? This is the kind of criminality in in plain daylight. Every single politician in New Zealand is part of this crime. And now they're standing up for re-election and they want the people to vote for them. Look, this is just such a, a, you know, a can of vomit. It really is. And it's so ridiculous. They can't tell poop from plasticine. These are really dumb people we're dealing with. But the sinister ones are behind the UN. They've got the smarts and they've got their representatives here, little like little agents popping around the place, busy keeping the fires burning, keeping people divided and fighting over stupid things that are totally irrelevant, like whether there is or isn't a Maori, for God's sake, or whether AOT or Rowan is anything. 
Sorry. We yeah. might grab get a couple of those books off you too, uh, Chris. So if people want to contact us, um, you know, maybe we can uh, ship those out to them as well. So thank you so much well, uh, for joining us, Chris. Really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, that book definitely sounds like a fascinating read. It's kind of like the history that you won't learn at um, at school. I mean, our history on New Zealand is pretty bad anyway, but uh, this sounds really a lot us, more like the true history, not the rewritten history that they're trying to force on you now. With a sense of our own pride and dignity and value as a, as one people, which is what we are. That's right. We're going to stay strong as one nation uh, and look, you yeah, know, internally uh, as much as uh, Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister and the Globalists, want us to constantly look externally, we can look after our own nation and our own people. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank Have you. a good day. I'm actually really looking forward to reading that book. Speaking of which, we will have those available at merch at counterspinmedia.com. Just flick us an email and we will send that out to you for a donation. Also, you can get a copy of Martin Dutre's The Littlewood Treaty. Uh, merch at counterspinmedia.com. We've got those available. Also, speaking of which... Uh, back in the early days of Counterspin, we did have Martin Dutre on for a deep dive into the secret history of New Zealand and the fraudulent way that the te tiriti of Waitangi is now being used. That is a two-part series with Martin, and the first part is episode 19, and we will have that linked down in the description below. Now, Chris did actually mention uh, these fraudulent actors that we've got here in New Zealand. So before we bring Carol on, who will further look into Undrip, we're going to play you a bit of a compilation of this fraudulent bunch down in Wellington, and they are, of course, all vying for your re-election this October. So let's see what they all have to say about this topic. The government is finally about to start wider consultation on the controversial He Puapua report. So you remember the report was written so that Aotearoa New Zealand can meet its obligations to Indigenous New Zealanders in the eyes of the UN. Its authors call it a roadmap to fair power sharing between Māori and Pākehā. You know... In 2019, a report called Hey Puapua came to government, but was never shown to one New Zealand First Cabinet Minister. Not shown to any of us. Not shown to our policy staff or any of us. That report was deliberately suppressed because, in short, it's recipe, it is a recipe for Maori separatism. I want to be clear about Hey Puapua. Hey Puapua was uh, incredibly important. But He Puapua is not the plan. He Puapua is not the plan. It is a collection of ideas, suggestions, aspirations and hopes for Māori. Uh, something to add to our discussions. It was pro provocative and it should have been provocative. And it has been the catalyst in terms of where we are today. However, as I said, He Puapua is not government policy. Co-governance has uh, been uh, around and with us and utilised in New Zealand for a number of years. Co-governance is actually exclusive. Uh, I think it creates resentment and we need to have an open debate about it. That is healthier for our society. Isn't the Treaty of Waitangi a partnership and therefore co-governance is simply a flow on from that? Uh, we reject that. Uh, my reading of the treaty is it says all people have the same rights and duties when it comes to nationwide democratic institutions having some seats reserved at the table. I just don't think that's compatible with one person, one vote democracy. Um, what does co-governance look like to Te Māori? 
Well, I think, um, you know, and I, I've got to say, from Te Pāti Māori's perspective, we were always a tautoko, uh, the document of Te Tiriti, which is about uh, Tenoranga Teratanga and Mana Motuhake, which is, you know, very much about self-determination, hiwa noa, in the um, best interests of Aotearoa and a Tiriti-centric Aotearoa. It is about uh, sharing uh, strengths. And I would say to you, I think it has been quite a divisive and immature conversation over recent years. And I personally think it's because the government hasn't been upfront or transparent with the New Zealand people about where it's going and what it's doing. And I believe in constitutional issues, you actually spend your political capital, you make your case, and you take people with you. So I want to be clear, and I have to level with you, National does oppose co-governance in the delivery of public services. We believe in a single coherent system not one system for Māori and another system for non-Māori for the delivery of public services. Things like health and education and justice and for critical infrastructure like Three Waters. Wait on there, Mr Luxon. Isn't Three Waters, or is it Nine Waters now, a creation straight out of the same United Nations Heipuapua co-governance playbook that the National Party under John Key gave birth to? Co-governance, the actual discussion, is tenoranga tiratanga in the Articles of the Treaty. That's what the discussion is. And the actual discussion is when Māori are able to control our people and our land, it's good for everyone, whether it's looking after our rivers and our waters, looking after our community, that is good for future generations. One of the things that has been very difficult for people to speak about openly without being cancelled or branded a racist or branded uh, prejudiced is the, what we say in Kaitai, the kaupapa, the issue of co-governance. And what are the most of the Māori in Parliament in politics talking about? Co-governance. We need honest and transparent governance before we need co-governance. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something about co-governance that was never an idea that originated in New Zealand. That came from the United Nations. And I was one of the few parliamentarians when that issue was being taken by John Key, the ACT Party, and Dr Peter Sharples to New York who bitterly opposed it. I said the United Nations has got no business importing its conception of how democracy should be modified to deal with indigenous rights, those issues have to be settled amongst us, the sovereign people of New Zealand. Co-governance is something that um, is uh, nothing to be feared. The Party Māori goes further and says quite clearly we own the water and uh, there's no evidence to suggest that that claim is wrong. There have been fiery scenes at Parliament as the Māori Party co-leader was kicked out, accusing Judith Collins of Māori bashing. But the National Party leader insists she's just doing her job. Here's political reporter Benedict Collins. The Māori Party had heard enough. Order, the member will now leave the chamber. It was this question line around separate systems for Māori that sparked it. Does she in any way accept the view in Hea Puapua that New Zealand has two spheres of governance? It is 2021. Right. You know, in my uh, in my view, Mr. Speaker, I think New Zealand New Zealand generally accepts uh, that we have a relationship between the Crown and Māori. 
We are now joined by the lovely Carol Saiki from Wake Up New Zealand. I think she's probably the most researched great-grandmother in this country, and it's such a pleasure to have her. Welcome, Carol. Oh, thank you very much, Hannah. A pleasure. Now, we've got a lot to get through, and you, like I say, are so well-researched. It's going to be a, a really difficult task for me to kind of try and keep you on track and make sure we get the best out of you um, and make it as easily understandable for the viewer as we can. So I think let's get straight into it. What we're going to do is put it into context, this whole uh, hey, pua pua kind of co-governance situation, and you're taking it right back to the United Nations. So why don't we start with um, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, or UNDRIP, as it's uh, abbreviated to. Can you give us a bit of a what is yeah. it type of overview? So the UN de- Declaration of Indigenous People was actually introduced into the UN Assembly on the 13th of September 2007. Now, that had been planned for 25 years prior to this, and members of the iwi had actually been part of that planning right up to that point. So there was 11 absentees who didn't vote on that, uh, 114 that agreed to it, and four countries that rejected it. And that was Australia, America, Canada, and New Zealand, of course. So um, that was, um, there was a number of things within the declaration that um, were pointed out. One of those was the Indigenous people should, there should be no discrimination against Indigenous people and that they should be used as a full effective way of um, implementing legalities, constitutions within states. Okay, now back in 2007, um, when you say it came to be and New Zealand rejected it, who who was representing New Zealand at the time when they went to the United Nations? That was Rosemary Banks. Okay, and then so when, when um, when well, let's start with why, so was there anything else we need to talk about as in why New Zealand rejected it and, and these other countries? Well, mainly because it's non-democratic. It couldn't be implemented at all. It was overreach just could not be implemented. It meant that the whole of New Zealand would be controlled by Indigenous people. Okay, and so does the um, UNDRIP actually define Indigenous people? Do we have a definition for that? Actually, there's been quite a bit of debate about the word Indigenous. Uh, it, It comes from a Latin word, which actually doesn't mean like native it means to beget to be born into a country and of course language has been used as a tool and this is what's happened over the years so now indigenous is like self-determination they explain it as being self-determination so the indigenous rights to self-determination the destiny of their own lives Okay, and what about uh, the New Zealand government? Like, do we have a statutory definition of Indigenous? No, it's very difficult because they've said that Indigenous, they keep on relating it to all different things because they haven't got a um, solid concrete definition of Indigenous. Well, that makes it uh, very easy for them to be tricky about 
what this all means. It's kind of like the word racist or racism. They never really want to define it, and then they throw it around um, and and base policy on it, and they don't even really have a definition. So when did New Zealand actually, because it, it's just still just a declaration, isn't it? When did New Zealand agree to this declaration? So if we can just come back a bit, self-determination is everybody's self-determination because by the UN Charter in 1948 and several other uh, international uh, rules, agreements, they say that all peoples of the world have self-determination rights by virtue, every person in this world. Yes, and other people also like to say about indigenous. It just means you're born like of in that land, yes. like you say, you've been yes. begotten of that land. So technically, anybody born in New Zealand is indigenous to New Zealand and has a right to self determination. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so then, um, I mean, yeah. Do you want to go into when when we became a part of it, or do you, would you like to talk a bit more about opposition and objections first? Oh, yes, I'd like to talk about objections, really. Um, there was four provisions in the UNDIP that um, New Zealand rejected. They were Articles 26, 19, 32 and 28, and they were about redress compensation for land that had been is being used, is owned legally by other people because they want a complete control of all the land. And that was too difficult to implement because already Indigenous and non-Indigenous, as it says in the Declaration, people already own, legally own, parcels of land. So you can't go and implement that right throughout New Zealand and give compensation for all land in New Zealand. And this is what Rosemary Banks actually says. Uh, the other thing was uh, that it's incompatible with the legalities, the Constitution and the Treaty of Waitangi. And also the land rights, where it's a violation of land rights, violation of uh, property rights, and they didn't take into account of any land settlements that were already going through through the treaty. So that wasn't taken into account either. The other thing was veto rights over the laws in Parliament. Um, yeah, so the, there were veto rights that other people had no could had no opportunity to actually have anything to do with those veto rights at all. It was just a two, two citizenships of New Zealand. And that's what they say, two citizenships of New Zealand, a co-governance. Wow. Okay, so they actually use that word citizenship, two yes. citizenships. Yes. Wow. Okay, so that was rejected, that's what you're saying. Yes. So then they've obviously gone and rewritten it a bit, probably kind of worded it not necessarily so divisively and come back and create a document that New Zealand was happy with in the end. Is that correct? Yeah, and that was under the Labour government. Okay, Carol, is there anything else you'd like to add um, now before we move on to actually discussing how it was then eventually adopted? Uh, yes, in September 2007, uh, Horemaya, 
he was a minister of Mary affairs under Labour. Now, he warned the Mary party that he said, you've got your head in the clouds. This, this declaration has no teeth. It's merely a document of aspiration. And he too warned the same as Rosemary Banks did what that would mean. It's exactly the same wording, and that can be found online too. So that was more confirmation of that. So can you just remind us what his wording was? Okay, so his name was Horemiah. Okay. And what did he say? What was his warning? Oh, okay, he said two classes of citizenship. And he also said about the land, uh, the, the property ownership of land, that there was all, already legal ownership of land, that it was legally owned by Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And those words were used. Okay, and we're going to yeah. link everything that you're talking about in the description box below uh, so yes. people can go and extensively research this all for themselves also. That's good. Okay, so now how um, would you like to discuss exactly this whole document was eventually adopted? Where did it Where did it kind of start and then who finally adopted it? Okay, so John Keyes was very can we say in bed with Peter Sharples with actually, without actually meaning in bed, but they were on the same side. So Peter Sharples was, it was arranged by John Key for Peter Sharples, who was co-leader of the Maori Party, to actually go to the UN to actually ratify the UNDRIP. Now, remember, the Maori Party had been working on that for many years, and Moana Jackson, um, Claire Charters, Professor of Law at Auckland University, who has actually got status in the UN. Who yes, is and she actually went on. She was one of the um, primary authors of Hey Pua Pua in the end. She was. And she's been there a very long time. And I think it'd be a good point here to add that um, Winston Peters is getting a lot of blame for this Heipuapu document being introduced, which is, of course, uh, bringing in this UNDRIP uh, into New Zealand, into our legislation. And he's made it very clear again uh, this week that, in fact, uh, he he did know about it you know, a long time ago, but this latest version and this whole document, Heipuapua, was actually done behind closed doors. And while he was last... Uh, in government with the Labour Party, he was actually um, kept in the dark. So people are trying to blame Winston Peters and, and he's saying it wasn't him. So a lot of shenanigans going on. But what your point, Carol, that I should take here is it doesn't matter if it's Labour or National, does it? Because they are both going to the UN and adopting or um, even just having as a declaration this policy and bringing it into New Zealand legislation. Yeah. What you've got to remember is you've got certain parties, like you've got Mary Party, you've got Labour, Greens, and to some aspects, ACT, all of them really are on board because they all know that the Human Rights Commission, represented by Claire Charters, okay, she's Human Rights Commission, and you've got the National Iwi Chairs Forum, and you've got the government, all in bed together doing this UNDRIP. They're doing it together, all implementing it. 
So this is exactly um, how it is worked through different committee phases and stages. Is that correct? And then, yes. and then yeah. in the end, they, um, you know, spit out the Heipuapua document. And, um, you know, it says right on the front page, this is a report of the working group on a plan to realise the Ewing Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Absolutely. So this is, you know, undoubtedly uh, the the UNDRIP, as you say, taking effect here in New Zealand. Um, is there any anything you want to go into detail about in regards to that connection between these different groups and maybe UNDRIP and, and co-governance? We really need to actually speak about yeah. this word co-governance. I think it's really important to remember that it's the law of nations, an international law of nations that says that groups are not states and only states can agree to these international agreements. So therefore, it has to be enacted out in political uh, realms within countries. This is where they had a problem. This is why it's happening here like this. So we've had the Canadian Indigenous group uh, from Canada and they have been talking with Willie Jackson and others. There's big, been massive meetings right across the country around this. And they have been trying to tell, show the, uh, these Indigenous groups how to enact out the UNDRIP in New Zealand. Because they've already done it in Canada. Right, so we're following um, behind Canada, and how how far along are we? Because obviously, there's a lot of talk about co-governance right now, and you know nobody really seems to know exactly what's going on. But it's very much seems to be that there will be some sort of apartheid system with different organisations being for Maori, and then the other organisations for everybody else. How is it going to look in practice here in New Zealand? Well, if you go back a bit, last year, uh, the government, the cabinet had been planning to actually implement this with the Maori Party. And the government put a halt onto it. The cabinet put a halt on it. Not halt like permanent, just a pause until the elections were finished this year. Now, Claire Charters and the Maori Party didn't like that. So Claire Charters, this April, this year, went over to the UN to try and get them to push this along in New Zealand. Uh, so that's been happening. So they're not happy that that's come to a pause. There was already a plan there that Cabinet have actually looked at and... Um, Woody Jackson said he wanted to discuss it amongst the nation, but I would say certain members of the nation because it's already been discussed amongst many groups. Yes, and this is this is this is the whole issue with the Julian Bachelor Stop Co Governance Tour, because the government of the day has not been allowing an honest, open, transparent debate. Uh, they've tried to, tried to ram it through behind closed doors and uh, was only um, released, I believe, under an Official Information Act request so that people could even get a look into what Hey Pua Pua was about. Um, 
And of course, now people are saying, oh, Julian's a racist and anybody that wants to talk about potentially uh, putting a halt to this co-governance issue is a racist. Now, have you got any uh, concluding comments? Because I think this is a great start for people and, um, you know, we can then bring you back on and really delve into some more of the finer detail. Um, yeah, so what are your what are your kind of closing comments oh, on this well, whole let's thing? Let's just talk a little bit about Hey Pupu because we haven't really spoken about that. So Hey Pupu is the roadmap to UNDRIP. That's your Vision 2040. They cannot do that yet. Uh, me, personally, I believe it's because they have not got a sovereign state in New Zealand of indigenous sovereign state, uh, wherefore you can okay, make... Uh, yeah, I'm just going to cut in there. What do you think, once they bring in this, um, once they bring it, like if they were to, to bring it in as they want in 2040, what is the final goal, do you think, of the UNDRIP? Okay, so I, I just believe it's total governance of New Zealand. And do, do you think they want a technocratic state? Yes, absolutely. Yes, and it's all in UN favour because that's globalisation. Also, that globalisation, if you think one step further, we're looking at multi-stakeholder corporation, actually uh, a partnering that's the UNWEF partnership of 13th of June 2019, stakeholder governance. Well, what we've got in New Zealand, if it's co-governance, that is a stakeholder governance. So that actually uh, expands the globalization of stakeholder corporations. Yeah, so it'll be iwi corporations uh, dealing with the United Nations and global corporations. And in the end, you know, we won't even be voting for these people because they they are just getting put on these boards. Carol Seiki, thank you so much. We're going to have to You're wrap welcome. it up there. And uh, we'll look forward to getting you on again another time. Yes. Thank you so much. Bye. It really is worth checking out uh, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, and the Heipuapu document for yourselves. Just like heading to one of these Stop Co-Governance Tour events will help you inform yourself, stopcogovernance.kiwi. And hey, you may actually be treated to a cultural experience when you go. Maybe the uh, far left will perform a haka for you. Seems to be the way that they like to roll these days but on a serious note do take some friends and be armed with your camera because these events can get pretty sticky as one person knows and that is Samantha Edwards from the Samantha Edwards report she joins us now to discuss exactly what happened to her when she attended the Palmerston North event recently but before we bring her on we thought we'd give you a bit of a treat because this coming national election here in New Zealand is already being dubbed uh, the election of the minor parties by the mainstream. Now, many of these minor parties are, in fact, alternative minor parties, very much breaking away from the establishment. So let's see what they all have to say about co-governance. Very soon, this current Labour government is going to take your assets. Hey Pua Pua was put into play by John Key back in 2010. So national is all over this. 
And if you expect them to start unravelling it and pulling it back, then you can think again. Equity under the law, playing as one team. No co-governance or elitist structures and no second-class citizens. We will protect and uphold the New Zealand Bill of Rights as supreme law to stop the government tyranny. We believe in protecting free speech and supporting women's rights. We will take race out of everything. It is about need and we oppose co-governance. Can I just run through some, some issues uh, facing New Zealand right now and see where you, as part either individually as Vision New Zealand or as part of a, a grouping of political parties or political interests, would be co-governance? No. No? No, no. to co-governance? Uh, co-governance, no, we're opposed to co-governance. Um, again, I see that or we see that as um, elitist. We support localism, people before globalists respect for different views of our communities and the fair treatment for all of us. It is an alliance between Pākehā Māori against an errant government. Let us not succumb to the division of racism, but instead join forces to pursue the betterment for us all. We will scrap all race-based policies and instead adopt a position based on need and necessity. The system of apartheid being built up in this country will be torn down. The push towards co-governance will end. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. Samantha Edwards from the Samantha Edwards Report. Nice to finally catch up with you. Thanks so much for joining us. I really wish uh, actually it was under better circumstances. Um, why don't you just get straight into it and start telling us what happened to you about a week ago now? Well, that was an eventful evening. Uh, I went to the Palmerston, Palmerston North Stop Co-Governance meeting and uh, I wanted to learn about co-governance and what it really means and perhaps a little bit about the treaty you know um just just listen basically i was curious so i went along uh listened to the meeting it had its moments of interference which were you know <laughs> pretty um uh exciting i guess you could say but things really amped up when i left the building um i went to uh, leave to go back to my car and um even as soon as the gates opened, um, the police, you know, pretty much had to flank me just to get me through the crowd. Um, there was no sort of protesters at 10 metres kind of business going on. Uh, they were in my face, uh, shouting my name. They seemed to know who I was. Uh, I think probably because the previous weekend I'd, I'd uh, gone along to the Drag Time Story Hour at the museum here as part of the... Um, school holiday program thing and politely and respectfully asked the drag queen a couple of questions about why they felt they needed to be here reading stories to toddlers um, and why they weren't down at the local retirement home doing that um, so they didn't appreciate that and I was you know asked to leave and there was a lot of hate around that and a lot of the LGBTQ crowd were actually there and they recognized me as I was walking out and the hatred was off the charts, just off the charts. So there was the, uh, you know, really far left racism stuff going on as well as the um, you're a homophobe kind of thing as well. 
So, so how many protesters do you think were there on the night? I, I think about 150. So at that point, that was probably the most that any of Julian's events had attracted, would you say? I'm not actually sure, Hannah. Um, I know it was definitely the most um, feral crowd. I think it's about the best word I could use to describe it. It was pretty intense. Apparently it was, yeah, you know, about the most. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it looked pretty extreme. I watched um, the whole, you know, footage that um, you had shot. I watched it from start to finish and – we will upload that to Rumble as just a separate piece so you can go and watch that and we'll put the link down in the description below. But it was just absolutely gut-wrenching, actually, Sam, if I'm honest, watching yeah. that, just yeah. to see how close they were coming, how you know aggressive they were, shining the light in your face. Mm-hmm. And they were also, I noticed, covering themselves with these blankets and flags constantly. It was almost like they were actually mm-hmm. embarrassed of their own behaviour. They were covering me, Hannah. Um, yeah, they, okay, from the moment I walked out, okay, I'd taken a couple of steps, I was spat at, I had a whistle blowing at me, I mean, so loud that you could feel the spit coming out of the whistle, you know. Um, it's, and then you actually even hit by a light, I don't know, should we, should we yes, play that little clip yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, so I walked out of that little sort of passage and I was kicked in the shins and I got to the end the the and then I was like, you went down the to the other end of the car park, which is where I am here, talking to a friend and a couple of people called out, oh we've got a lingerer and they came down. So there was this lady first. Oh, there's the crazy lady still. Hey crazy lady. Charming. Yep. Get away from my face. So she came up to my phone, tried to knock it out of me. You are about five centimeters at the most from my mouth. And then she sort of put her arm up to my face. Then her partner, I think it is, comes down. You can hear him yelling. Chased me with this. He turns up. Get your light. So he's got like a double panel kind of construction halogen light in my face, about this close. Hurting my eyes even with my eyes shut. Tell him to get it out. He goes around the back of my head and whacks me in the back of the head with it. You can actually hear it hit me in the in the footage there. So um yeah. That was just I mean I was at this point you're trying to away from the crowd, you know, getting away from the crowd. So even that wasn't good enough. I was not allowed to be on the premises as far as they were concerned. So, yeah, then I went down to the police and told them what had happened. And I said, this guy just hit me in the back of the head with his mic. And I'm pretty upset at this stage because the police kind of turned away and said, you know, eventually said, oh, you can come into the station in the morning and file a report, which I thought was disgusting, you know. And this seems to be the case, Samantha, with the police all over the country who seem to be siding with protesters um, rather than actually protecting the people attending Julian's events. Uh, for example, what we what came out this week was the fact that, of course, Julian had to stop publicising the venues because these protesters were getting them cancelled, putting so much pressure on venue owners uh, that they would end up getting scared, cancelling the event. So then Julian had to start, you know, secretly basically telling people where uh, he was going to be speaking. 
And then, of course, he was also letting the police know. And what he found this week, as soon as he stopped telling the police where the venue was, uh, the protesters stopped coming. So he was actually suggesting that maybe uh, there was some sort of police collusion now with the protesters. And from your footage, it's actually very sad to see that, you know, a 150-strong, angry, abusive, aggressive mob uh, versus one lady uh, and the police just basically stood there, did nothing, and told you to go and make a complaint in the morning. Um, and yeah, well, I mean, how did you find the police? I I would have been a lot quicker to jump to that place that Julian is, I think, now considering the whole collusion thing than he was. Uh, I I thought it was it was horrifying because I literally they had seen it all. The, the, the spitting, the whistling, the flash strobe lights in my face, the pushing, the shoving, the kicking, uh, then the being hit on the head. And that's and it was by that point, you know, like when I'm yelling there at the police, you're not going to do anything. It had already been sort of, what, 10 minutes of just, I'd never experienced anything like that. And I was just, I was just incredulous that they weren't going to do anything. Obviously, um, the guy who's just whacked me in the head with a, you know, this is a big light. It's like that big, a big double panel thing. He's just hit me in the back of the head. Um, I'm not going to be able to necessarily identify him, but he's here right now. Do you want to, you know, but they didn't want to know. They didn't want to know. Um, and I and had, some of the criticism, sorry, just to cut in there from the police was basically, you know, well, you should just leave. You should just go to your car, just yes. hurry up and get away. But yes. you are just as you know you have as much right to be walking in that area exactly. as those protesters do you not absolutely and i um i felt strongly about that hannah um there was so much pressure get in your car and go home you know um and i was actually doing that i had gone all the way down the other end of the car park and i was just talking with a friend then i was going to get in my car and go home and then when i'm Hit in the head, and then I go and tell the police about that. And they, you know, well, you, it's your fault. You should be at home. And I'm thinking, as I'm sort of fuming about this, walking back to my car, I'm thinking, actually, if I was to do that right now, I am actually empowering this. I am actually surrendering territory that my children uh, are going to suffer for. I'm not comfortable doing that. Um, when he said, you know, when all these people are shouting at me uh, to go, I'm thinking if we, you know, if this is, how do I explain it? If this is what we do, if we surrender to this kind of bullying and intimidation, um, then we're kind of uh, almost approving of this. And well, they way. get more emboldened. This is the thing. And this That's is the right. real problem. So, yeah. so I police turned back actually... and, yeah, and I was like, okay, I think I'm going to stay right here. Thank you very much. And I'm going to film. And so I, I I did that. I did it respectfully. I never uh, shouted abuse. I didn't swear at anyone. I was just leaning against this bus stop because I thought if I'm leaning against someone, something, they can't accuse me of advancing or, you know, inciting so I'm just standing there leaning. And um, this you mentioned before about how they were holding things up. There was two of them, which I believe were assigned to me because of certain things they said during the night. Uh, a drag queen in stilettos with a big platinum wig 
and uh, another rainbow clown lady who um, was holding a big sort of rainbow blanket and they were holding in front of me so I couldn't film at all. Um, and I thought, again, you know, this is uh, amazing to me. There's just uh, this hypocrisy of we can film, we can shout, we can abuse, we can hit, we can kick, we can spit, we can do anything we want, but your presence is so offensive to us. And, and uh, you know, they didn't yeah, even want me to film anything. And uh, I, I could, you know, I couldn't help but thinking, what are these people so afraid of? The truth? Well, and can you imagine what it would have looked like if it was, you know, the shoe was on the other foot? Like, had that, had you been, you know, a far lefty, you know, an Antifa type, and that group, mm. had they been a rowdy Julian Bachelor attendee group, which, of course, the mainstream media is labelling far right, um, you know, white supremacist types. Mm. But, of course, they're not. They're just, when you look at all the footage from the events, they, I mean, they primarily look like, retired you know uh scone eating tea drinking very nice um nana and pop types uh let's be honest and mm. uh i mean do you want to do you want to bring up at this point what the antifa types are doing you know this one lady that came in and actually almost i think pretty much caused one of these lovely elderly women to go deaf with with her whistleblowing um yeah. should we, we play that clip first and then um or do you want to set it up at the hastings me- meeting Sure. Yeah, well, I was going to mention the Hastings meeting, Hannah. Um, You know, I think it was a couple of nights later where they actually had to shut it down because, as you'll see here, there's this lady who actually just gets up from her seat and takes Julian's laptop and just lifts it up and smashes it on the ground. Um, As you can see here, there's lots of police, again, in the room. I don't see any of them running up to stop this from happening. Uh takes them a while to get there and um by the time someone finally sort of starts to escort her out uh she uh knocks the data projector off the ground and smashes that on the ground uh, as well and then uh, actually later in the meeting they storm <laughs> they actually break down the door or push their way in and um yeah so uh, a little while after that there's been there's a hucker being performed you know and the whole meeting had to be shut down so that's the kind of stuff that's going on and um yeah it's horrendous it's absolutely atrocious and it's like as you say uh it looks like the police are just kind of standing back letting it happen very much like what happened at the posey parker event in albert park um back in march uh i can personally testify to telling the police that things were just about to kick off before they really did, and they just stood there and did nothing and watched it mm. all happen. Mm. So um, it's almost like they've been told to stand down. And then do you want to mention mm. what happened in uh, New Plymouth uh, with the Ewe actually threatening to pull funding from the race well, course? Yeah, yeah. Again, um, you know, threats and intimidation uh, were used to shut the venue down. I mean, this is happening everywhere that Julian goes, apparently. Uh, the, the venue's being shut down. I don't know if... Of the last one where it wasn't shut down, the Iwi uh, threatened the race course, I think, which was where it was being held. They were going to pull their funding and I think even threatened the race course. I'm not actually 100% sure of the details, but um, that ended up in him having to lose, losing the venue and uh, eventually through th- threats of venues being burned down and uh, death threats and that sort of thing, him having to um, have his 
seminar in a private space and just live stream it. Um, so. Yeah, and this is a really sad thing. And of course, the same thing happened to Counterspin when we were on tour last year. Uh, you know, these people, they they ring up, they get you cancelled. Um, they make sure that you don't have a chance to hear what other people have to say. And this comes down to actually being a freedom of speech issue, uh, wouldn't you say, Sam? 100%, Hannah, 100%. And that, that's that's where I'm coming from with this. You know, yes, I don't like co-governance. I know how bad it is. Um, but actually, that's not the issue for me here. Uh, the issue is that uh, our society has descended into this cesspit where if uh, if you are not parroting the government-approved narrative, um, it is now acceptable to be uh, physically assaulted, threatened. You know, this, this happens so regularly to me. Uh, it's um, astonishing how far we've come. But, you know, it is what was modelled to us, I believe, through the whole COVID thing. Our government modelled this to us uh, that it was okay, you know, apartheid, COVID apartheid, <laughs> medical apartheid back then. And and I do believe that what was walking back then with the whole one source of truth narrative is now running in the people themselves. It's reproduced. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's really literally at a point where online uh, a lot of these platforms are not actually having to censor th- this kind of speech. Um because people are doing it for us. I mean, it happens to me all the time. I'll ask a question even about, I don't know, let's say pre-Polynesian history in New Zealand, you know, the diversity of history that we have in New Zealand. I might ask a question or just begin talking about it. And the threats and the kind of speech that comes to me, it's just horrendous. Yeah, because what's happening, isn't it, Sam? It's like the division is just heightened now. It's like people have really... um, it's all very black and white. There's kind of no gray areas anymore. People can't have nuanced debate. Like you say, even people on our side, uh, if you want to even call it sides, but um, people in the truth community, the freedom community are uh, at different levels of what understanding, also different levels of courage. And this is probably where I'd like to bring up the point as well that, um, you know, you were again by yourself. Where were all the other, you know, freedom lovers truth truthers there to support you to walk through this rowdy crowd you know because i mean did did yeah. some of them leave like like realistically i mean we're not gonna we're not trying to call them out and blame them but was yeah. it that bad mm. that some of them were actually really scared uh that they couldn't even help you i don't know hannah but it bothers me it really does you know i mean i had this through the whole tamaki expose affair i was called a racist for that too Apparently it wasn't about the profiting from, you know, the jab in the car park. It was because it was a race thing, you know. Um, I, and then the same people after after the fact and they realised, well, actually people were kind of agreeing with me. They were like, oh, we were with you the whole way. Um, but they weren't, <laughs> you know, which is fine. I mean, I'm okay with that. It's okay. But it's like, for example, and, um, you know, I hesitate to say this because I don't mean to offend offend the friend that I was talking to down the other end of that car park. But when this person came up to me, these two people and this guy, and he starts shouting in my ear, freedom, freedom, whatever he's doing. I don't even know. Anyway, he's got this big builder's light and he comes up and he's got it in my face and I'm shouting, get it out of my face because even with my eyes closed, it is burning my eyes. And he goes around the back and hits me. My friend disappeared. 
a man. Yeah, that's terrible. And and the yeah. other thing that I really want people to realize now is, um, I mean, people were criticizing uh, at that the last event where that woman was blowing the whistle that I mentioned, um, you know, someone from the crowd yelled, pull her pants down. Well, what someone said to you, uh, and we'll, we'll play this clip, it's it's quite hard to hear, but someone said, give her a cuddle. And then someone else says, uh, we'll give her a root. So let's play that and see if, see if you can hear it. I thought it was very terrible. Big give it to you. They call me Felicia. I don't know what that's Felicia. Saying. Give her a cuddle. <laughs> give her a cuddle. Give her a good Okay, I'm not prepared to actually go into my car with people yeah, watching. This is where I'm actually, I've been really begging the police to escort me back to my car because this whole thing of, you know, well, you should be at home. You're inciting violence by your very presence. Uh, well, at that point, I couldn't even go to my car. I was trying to tell them that all night. I was huddling up to the police because... Last time we went down that end of the car park, I got smacked in the head with a light. So, no. At this and you point, don't want them to see what car you're going into either because that's dangerous. Because Well, my, the drag you. queen thing last week, the, the week before, they put photos of my car online. Yeah, see, face, this is, this is, this is like doxing and things. So, yeah. um, this next clip, uh, do you want to introduce that? It's about a false narrative, like you're feeling like, you know, they're trying to say they're all inclusive and everything, but of course um, you're not allowed to have your own opinion, are you? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just a tiny little piece, which might seem a little bit insignificant, but this is, a, this is again, where I've asked the police to, to escort me back to the car. You're going to come with me? And I've asked if, she, if he could ask this woman who's been, you know, she's this close to my face all night in front of my phone. I've been down low, up high. I can't get away from her. She won't let me film. She's, she's going to leave now, so let's just get leave. I just want to make sure she doesn't So the police says, let's just let her leave now. She's going to leave now. I mean, even that, ver that verbiage is like, um, rather than saying, move aside and let her walk because this woman has been here all night long let let's let us leave let her leave now you know it's an interesting way to put it and um and then the woman says yeah but i just don't want her to get any footage even on the way back to the car um which i just yeah, thought was interesting we'll make you wonder why these people are so you know fair and inclusive and divert and all about diversity why is there a whole crowd of them that are allowed to film, but I'm not allowed to get any footage? You know, yeah, people makes you with wonder. nothing to hide hide nothing. That's right. Um, the other thing that you wanted to talk about as well is the media misrepresentation um, and this protest to remove. So is that that's referring to that last um, event that I mentioned where they said yes. to pull their pants down as well? So we'll play yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to set that up? Yeah, so as you can see, actually watching this this footage, I literally just walked in the door and there's this thing going on. But there's a woman uh, who has come into the meeting and she's blowing a whistle. So she's, uh, you know, if I could just explain here, because I get a lot of this, you know, um, how wrong it is that Julian vets people at the door and people say it's because of skin color, it's ethnicity. It's not. It's this kind of stuff. <laughs> there are people that come in that are so disruptive, like this woman as she's blowing this whistle constantly for a long time. And so obviously you can't continue the meeting. There's people that have driven for a long time. 
to, to be there. So what are you going to do at that point? Go, oh, sorry, you know, meeting's over because this woman wants to blow her whistle. You know, you know, she's not going to leave. As you can see, she sits there for ages. The police don't come and remove her. So one of the team, one of Julian's team, pulls the chair because they don't want to put their hands on her. So they pull the chair to get her out and she just gets off the chair and plants herself on the floor. So she's blowing this whistle for ages and uh, um, eventually one of the guys has just had enough because she's blowing it. And as you can see, the lady next to her, an elderly lady, uh, is, you know, she's holding her ear because it's hurting her ear. So the guy drags her out. And, um, and so even at the start there, I think one of the, the leaders, uh, one of the team puts her hand on the protester's arm to sort of put her out. And the, the protester turns around and says, you hit me. You know, this is how irrational this all is. Yeah, apparently she's actually a, she's a well-known uh, activist, and she's um, not quite the full quid, let's say. Uh, which I you know, have guessed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, she's yeah. Uh, yeah meanwhile, but, but you Hannah, know, if I, if I can I just drop, yes. I listened to her little spiel outside in the car park afterwards, where she's actually you know you see it on the full entire video thing. And she's got the megaphone. She's going and and she's got the broken voice. I was just expressing my freedom of speech. Disgusting. Oh, Absolutely disgusting. And the police are not stopping it because it will create more drama. So they're allowed to continue. Police, you need to stop that. That's disgusting. Even though they've assaulted me, there are at least four people in there that have assaulted me tonight for expressing our right to stand up against racism. It's horrible to listen to, you know. Um, Oh, it's they're they're just they're just they're not even very good actors, but obviously they fake a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, you're just trying to walk to your car and you're getting assaulted and you're completely unprovoked. Yes. Uh, should we talk yeah. about your phone now being um thrown and obviously you're you you know you're being pulled by your hair and, and that clip that you've got. Sure. Yeah. Yep. So this is after Julian comes out of the building, um, and he's flanked like this military sort of operation um, just to try and get back to his car and um, so I'm still sticking close to the police because every time I move away from the police I, I get hit or kicked or, or something like that so I'm um, sticking close to the police I'm sort of in there and uh, you can actually see because this is someone else's footage at this point uh, they're filming me there's about two or three of them that are a little conspiring, having a little chat to each other, and they gather around me and reach over the top and grab my phone and throw it on the ground, um, and then they kick it around to each other. You can see they're trying to steal my phone. It's pretty obvious. Um, so someone picks it up and gives it back to me, someone actually sort of on our side of the you know, conversation. And um, then I bend down to pick up my credit cards and when I do that one of them grabs me by my hair and literally pulls me up you know my whole weight by my hair and and, and as I'm getting lifted up I'm looking eyeballing this policeman who's watching the whole thing and I see him just look the other way uh, and then later on I say to him you saw that and you're not going to do anything and he goes I didn't see anything Oh, that's terrible. Just absolutely terrible. They should be ashamed of themselves. Um, yeah. I don't even know how, how they can do that. I mean, I guess, yeah, they're getting orders um, to just, you know, may, I don't know what they're being told by people like you or people, anyone else attending the, the events mm. that 
somehow they've been conditioned to think they are crazy uh, right-wing conspiracy theorists slash white supremacists. Mm. I don't know, but it's atrocious. Yeah, I mean, it's like, um, say, for example, you know, the councillors with the smart cities and that sort of thing, if you actually look into, like I did with uh, one at a council meeting, looked into LinkedIn and looked at all the courses this councillor had done and then who ran those courses, they were all about, you know, the climate is going to kill us. It's going to kill us all. We all got to get into smart cities. That's, they're just, you know, these courses that they do are soaked in that stuff. So I would imagine the police are probably also getting trained with courses that are talking about, um, you know, the, the grievances are, are valid and, um, you know, we are racist and I don't know, but they're probably indoctrinated with this stuff before the diversity and um the rainbow tick kind of indoctrination stuff i wonder if they get that because a lot of mm. um a lot of companies uh you know um requiring their staff to understand uh the rainbow tick mm. so um bef- before we mm. wrap up have you got anything else that we need to cover because uh this is just an example and i feel like it's going to get a lot worse but we need people to understand what exactly is going on yeah well um, I had some people tell me, you know, maybe you shouldn't go to that event, Sam, because people that go to the Julian Bachelor event are getting painted a certain way. Um, but, you know, personally, I feel like if we don't confront this uh, fierce vilification of any varying stream of thought than the government narrative, um, this wall of ignorance is just going to get wider and taller and we won't be able to do anything about it at that point. So we have to act um, you know, we have to combat it with truth, light, and um, that is what this event was about, um, an opportunity to learn, discuss, think, go home, do our own research, and decide where we stand on the matter. But um, right now, that is something that's being denied, you know, um, just shut down. And, uh, yeah, and this is what's happening, is that the, the protesters are assuming full-blown racist status you know, of anyone for merely attending. No rational conversation, no discussion. Um, so it's it's a pretty sad state of affairs. And just before we go, Sam, are you going to be lay, uh, laying a, you know, assault charge against uh, these people that assaulted you? And are you going to maybe even lay a complaint against the police with the IPCA uh, for the way they conducted themselves on the night? Uh, yes, I've already laid a complaint with the police about the assault, uh, handed over the footage and that sort of thing. So they're starting an investigation into that. And I'm looking into whether I may have grounds for an IPCA complaint. Um, I do believe that we need to do whatever we can and, you know, take every avenue available to us. They rely on it being so unpleasant that we just want to put it out of our mind. But we must do something about this before it becomes normalised. And, of course, uh, it is called the Independent Police Complaints Authority, which is actually the police investigating themselves. So we don't have much faith in it. But, like you say, you know, we need to do these things and people need to um, just keep using every avenue they have to, um, you know, hold power to account. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us again. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that whole uh, palaver. It's absolutely disgusting on all fronts. And uh, hopefully uh, this will actually help wake some people up about what could potentially turn into... Uh, you know, who knows, a really dark time, and we don't want that. We don't. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if I have to suffer for that cause, I'm fine with that, (laughs) as long as it has a positive outcome in the end, that's good. 
Yeah, you're a brave lady. Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you, Hannah. Okay. It's been quite a show, and already we have had interest in a future debate. Uh, the people we are speaking to are actually all anti-co-governance, but they all slightly differ in their opinions, so it'd be good to hear what they have to say. And even better, though, we would like to get somebody on that is pro-co-governance, but um, often those people think we're either too radical or they're just not really making sense in their argument. Uh, let us know what you think in our chats. Primarily, Telegram is the place you'll find us in real time. Or send us an email, info at counterspinmedia.com. Uh, or check us out on other social media like Facebook and Twitter. Or even Getter if you're watching from overseas. Now, we do need your support. We can't do this without you. If you'd like to take a sip out of the Counterspin mugs, then they are still available. Just as our merch is, our t-shirts and a few hoodies, Counterspin, uh, sorry, merch at counterspinmedia.com if you want to get your hands on one of those. And we do want to give another plug for our amazing writers here at Counterspin. Uh, we've had a great article recently by Mike B, who covers the Sue Gray court case. She is a lawyer who actually was facing the Law Society after a number of complaints at the tribunal. And she had a great judge who actually ruled in her favor and came out and called out the mainstream media as well. Uh, so, you know, maybe there are still judges in our system that have common sense, logic and reason. Uh, check out Mike's article for more information on that so thank you all for joining us thank you to all of you who support us and get behind us we really couldn't do this without you and we look forward to having calvin back uh, next time and thanks to all our guests and we look forward to seeing you again soon thank you slow recovery virus infections injections connections can all leave a toxic residue Spike proteins are the hooks on the outside of the virus that attach to your cells. Spike proteins fit like a key into these ACE receptors, unlocking cellular walls. Spike proteins are still found in the body months after an exposure, leaking from the intestine into the bloodstream, hitting ACE receptors which can disrupt normal blood and heart processes, meaning slower recovery for people who can't break them down. Spike Detox is a formula to support your body in normal functions, including detox, after exposure to glycoproteins, inspired by four everyday plant medicines. Two plants that support cells, two plants that support detox. Cell support, supercomputers predicted black seed and quercetin have molecules that fit the ACE receptor to protect it, supporting normal heart and blood, and normal cell walls. Detox support. Spikes are glycoprotein. Some people can break down glycoprotein quickly. Others benefit from extra support. Pineapple's bromelain enzymes break down glycoproteins, like when pineapple juice tenderizes steak. Bromelain dissolves glycoproteins, supporting natural detoxification for people who need it. Acetylcysteine is a stable form of amino acid cysteine inspired by similar compounds in garlic, an antioxidant powerhouse shown to increase bromelain's ability to dissolve spikes. Spike Detox supports normal heart and blood, supports normal cell walls, supports natural detoxification, because not everyone is bouncing back quickly. Spike Detox is available from extralife.co.nz.
Enter promo code CSM at checkout for $10 off your order, and Extra Life will make a special donation to Counterspin. Extra Life for maximum longevity. This product is a dietary supplement. It cannot diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. These herbal extracts and nutrients support your body and its natural processes to maintain a state of wellness. If you are experiencing illness or disease, please consult a health professional. You can find Counterspin, New Zealand's media revolution, at counterspinmedia.com. And now, on the InfoWars Network, at band.video.